Amen. Boy, Jesus is awesome, isn't he? I mean, we don't come to church to just learn about Christ and have a Bible study or a sermon. We come to church to praise the Lord, don't we? So before we have prayer, I, I want to say praise God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean that from my heart. Anybody want to raise your hand and say, I'm with you today? Okay, now, that, that's a fact. Andrew, perfect. Thank you. That's a fact that we have every reason to be grateful to God because we would be lost in a hurry. We are saved by grace and we're saved in a, with a patient salvation that got it done at the cross of Calvary. Today, our sermon is about evidence. And so let's pray. Dear Father God, we believe in our hearts that Christ died, He rose from the dead, but we need evidence. We live in an era of skepticism when people just don't want to believe because they think it's stupid to believe in the Bible and Christ. And yet, Lord, we know that you are a God of reason and evidence. So give us the living Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If I had one chapter in the whole Bible... To hang my faith on more than any other, it would be Daniel chapter 9. Get your pen out, write down Daniel chapter 9. And more specifically, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. The father of modern science, the great monotheist. And the people say, well, you know, science is the secular age. We don't have science because of secular people. We have science because Sir Isaac Newton, the great monotheist, the great believer in the Bible, forged the empirical method that gave us modern physics, optics. I believe Dr. Jeff got his Ph.D. related to Newton in some way in terms of nanotechnology and the like. You can't do it without physics. We would not have science without the great breakthroughs that came from the consecrated Christian man, Sir Isaac Newton. The father of modern science, Sir Isaac Newton, called 490-year time prophecy in Daniel 9 the foundation stone of the Christian religion. Now, he was not a person who would write that just to write it. He wrote it because he meant it. The 70 weeks of Daniel 9 is the ultimate evidence, according to Newton, that no unbeliever, no skeptic, can face in the judgment day and have an excuse for not believing in God, more specifically in Jesus Christ. He argued that it provides the ultimate evidence for skeptics so prone to unbelief to prove that we are not inventing out of thin air the firm and belief and confidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the hope of the entire world. The 70 weeks of Daniel 9, 24, 27, friends, is a tight prophetic oracle that carries an intellectual knockout punch with it, with a spiritual lift full of hope and love that points us to the person, the power, and the purpose of Jesus Christ for the whole world and in our lives too. This 490-year time prophecy of the 70 prophetic weeks of Daniel 9, what does it do? It predicts the end of the Jewish nation. It predicted Jesus' death on the cross to the year, hundreds of years in advance. It predicts his resurrection by typology. It predicts the inauguration of the heavenly ministry of Jesus that the New Testament and the book of Hebrews focuses upon. It is a watershed for evidence to believe in Christ. Newton was right. It is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. Now, this prophecy did all of this about 490 years in advance. So the skeptics would have something to chew on if they are honest enough to quietly and carefully consider the evidence in the book of Daniel and the Bible that Jesus is who he claimed to be. This time prophecy was correctly understood 
200 years before Christ by the Jewish believers at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They wrote about Daniel 9. They preserved part of Daniel 9 200 years before Christ. In Cave 11, the Melchizedek Scroll, if I were to ask you next week what is in Cave 11, you should say what? The Melchizedek Scroll was found predicting the coming of the Messiah as Elohim, as the new Melchizedek who would save the sons of God from the darkness of the world. And then it says it would happen at the end of 10 Jubilees, which is 409 years. That's the prophecy in Daniel 9. And then the prophecy said, it quotes right there, the Dead Sea Scroll document quotes Daniel 9, even unto Messiah Prince. So they were interacting with the book of Daniel before the first coming of Christ. These Jewish believers were looking for the Messiah to come just as Daniel 9, 24 to 27, had predicted he would. Daniel 9 does more than just predict the coming of Jesus as Messiah and his death on the cross to the very year. Daniel 9 validates the entire Bible as the Word of God. Write that down in your notes. You say, Pastor Mike, how can that happen? Well, we live in a world today that denies that God Almighty created the world in seven days. People say, you don't believe in that, do you? And they assume that if you believe that an omnipotent, powerful God could terraform and create this planet in relationship to the heavenly cosmos in seven, seven days, that somehow that's ignorant. But you know... <clears throat> They also accept by faith that it evolved over millions and billions of years without the help of any almighty powerful God, and nobody was there on either side to prove it right or wrong, were we? I mean, you can go back in time. I wasn't at the, how many of you are at the creation of the earth. Any volunteers here at the creation of the earth? I wasn't there. All right? Uh, in fact, is Dr. Dawkins, Samuel Harris, some of the great skeptics of our day, they weren't there either. So to argue that science can prove something you can't see is not empirical. We accept by faith certain things, but faith re relies, or must, to be valid, it, it must be based on evidence. Genesis is the one book in the Bible that gives us a sacred history of the world from God himself, who was the eyewitness, through Moses, the servant of the Lord. And if we don't validate somehow the book of Genesis, if the book of Genesis falls apart, friend, your whole Bible falls apart. Now, I don't believe in arguing from necessity that we should believe in the book of Genesis so we can believe. I'm not into a, a veiled tautology. We don't need to do that. I believe that the evidence of Daniel 9 will wrap itself around Moses and corroborate Moses. Now, think about this. If Moses, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is wrong, certain implications follow. If Moses is wrong, then Jesus Christ is wrong. You hear me? Because he quotes Moses. He relies on Moses. If Moses is wrong, then there is no creation, and then that means there is no recreation. Paul says if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. If there was no first creation, there's no new creation, and there's no recreation that the book of Revelation talks about. If Moses is wrong, there was no Adam and Eve and a Garden of Eden home, and Jesus is not the second Adam that Paul claims he is in Romans 5, and that means salvation is in trouble. You see, because if we weren't made by him, he has no right to save us. The New Testament claims the one who made us saved us at the cross. And if there is no past in which God was in the garden with Adam and Eve, there is no future where God will be with us for all eternity, as the book of Revelation teaches. If there was no tree of life in the beginning, there is no tree of life at the end of the book of Revelation. We can't go back in time, as I said, and prove by empirical observation. 
the seven-day creation of the world. Nor can we go back in time and prove by empirical observation that the world evolved over long ages. So you're looking at religion no matter how you go. But we need evidence to believe the right one. Both of these diametric religions are based on faith. The, the religion of the Bible, the religion of secular humanism. But Daniel 9 affirms that what Moses predicted came true and that Moses spoke the truth in the past. So right here in Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel is saying, Moses got it right. Now, in Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel will say, now let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to give you a time prophecy that predicts the coming of the Messiah to the year and his death to the year to validate the entire Bible from Genesis to Daniel into the future. In that same chapter, Daniel 9, Daniel affirms that the Messiah matters when he predicts the very year Jesus would be manifested to the world, the very year Jesus would die for the sins of the whole world, the very year it would be proven that Jesus Christ is not just the creator, he's the one who can recreate and save and open up the door to the heavens themselves. So a lot's going on in Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is the chapter that is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. And that part of Daniel 9 is something we can test by history and records. You see, Daniel 9 was written within the sphere of recorded history. We can verify it or falsify it based on the evidence. Friends, God has not left us in our time to rely on feelings for our faith that must be firm. In other words, I just feel like I'm going to be a Christian. Many people say, well, you know, I got the Holy Spirit. He's poured out on me. I feel I got the rhema from God, and they go through all that kind of thing. I could care less about someone's rhema from God or someone's feeling that they have the Holy Spirit. I want the Bible. I want evidence from history to corroborate that Jesus is who he is. Is that valid? I don't want to believe a fable. I, if Christianity is not correct, as it is in the Bible, I'd rather not be associated with it. But if it is correct, I want to have my heart, my life, tagged in right there with God Almighty for, for a good future. So Sir Isaac Newton, I believe, is correct based on the evidence that Daniel 9, 24-27 is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. Now take your Bibles, and as I said, we're in Bible study mode the next few weeks here as we finish out the book Daniel. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel 9, 1. We have the verse on the screen. The Bible says, in Daniel's writing, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, Daniel is in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem. He was captured. He was brought to Babylon. He's studying the prophetic time prophecy that would say, time's up, you can go home. Now, if time prophecy didn't matter, he wouldn't be studying it. But he's studying it, just like Sir Isaac Newton was studying Daniel 9. And it just so happens, most people miss this, this is the same year that Daniel will be thrown into the lion's den. And that gives us a lot of context. Satan was watching Daniel. Here in Daniel 9, the angel Gabriel We'll be interacting with Daniel. Daniel is praying a lot here. Divine revelation is given to Daniel. He's given a history of the future that affects the Messiah. And that's the year Satan moved on those guys to get him thrown in the lion's den because Satan wanted to make sure that Daniel never wrote Daniel 9 down. But he did. So Daniel 9 begins with prayer of repentance for the sins of Israel. You know, ask yourself the question, what do you pray for in your life? 
Uh, do you pray, well, dear Lord, give me that nice car I want. You know, there's this nice Corvette that costs $150,000. There's a billion-dollar lottery out there. Lord, you know, I'm not supposed to do it, but would you answer my prayers to help me win the lottery and so you throw some money at it? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Oh, don't raise your hand, okay. Oh, that's not the kind of prayer Daniel's praying. He's, kind of, he's praying the kind of prayer God likes to answer. He's praying for God to forgive him of his sins. He's praying for God to change his life and change the lives and hearts of his people. He's praying that the word of God will be obeyed again among his people and there'll be a new beginning. They'll come out of captivity. He's praying for the good things we ought to pray for. Now, we're guilty of the same sins that he's praying for because our lives have sins in them too. The sin of arrogance, worldliness, spiritual betrayal, the violation of God's wall, treachery. The list is long. I mean, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does the word all mean when Paul says that? Does, does it mean, well, I'm a good person, you're not, because I never mess up. I'm an elder in the church. Does it mean that? Or does it mean we're all messed up, whether the elder in the church or not? We've all sinned, and we need a God Almighty to forgive us and cleanse us of sin, or we're toast. That's what it means, right? And so we find the truth that comes to us that we need God. Prayer, repentance, restoration. Daniel's praying. In the backdrop of our ugly sins stands the beautiful person of God Almighty who loves us with an almighty love that will engage us in a tough love that will strive for every heart, every soul, as if there is no other person in the universe. We are all important to God. So Daniel 9, 3. Now I want to ask my friends, my three friends here in Nathan, where are you at? I missed you. There you are. Yeah. Come forward. Now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to explain it to you so you know. Do we have anybody here with a stopwatch? Well, you guys come forward because you're going to be reading, all of you right here. I've got it all set up for you so it'll work easy here. But I need an adult or somebody who can take the time. Tim, would you help me here? Come on up to the front. I want you to get the stopwatch going. We're going to time this prayer, and you can be following it on your phones, but I'd rather you be listening to the prayer. This is the prayer that Daniel prays. Instead of just talking about it, we're going to read it all the way through, and let's think of it as our common prayer here today. So, Sammy, you're going to start with verses 4 to 7, not yet. Emmanuel, verses 8 through 11. Nathan, you do 12 through 14 and 15 to 16. And I'm going to finish up with 17 and 19. Fair enough? I think we got all four. No, Michelle's going to do 17 and 19. You with me? Okay, now we don't want to pause in between this prayer. So as soon as you finish, Emmanuel, you pop up. Nathan's next. Emmanuel, you end. Uh, uh, Michelle, you end with no break, okay? All right, you got the stopwatch going? You ready to start? Okay. Five. Go ahead, put that down there and get ready to read. Five, four. Now, read, now stand up to the microphone here so you want to be heard when you read that prayer. Should I read them? Okay. okay, five, four, three, two, one, go. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us the shame of 
for to us shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, and though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel is transgressed, your law and has your law and has departed as so not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us, by bringing, us, bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and made yourself a name, as it is this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, but my God for your city, and your people are called by your name. Okay, stop the clock. What, what, how many minutes does it say? Three minutes and 16 seconds, point ninety-one seconds, something like that. Thank you. You did the stopwatch thing, Tim. Appreciate it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for helping me there. You may go back to your seats. Okay, that prayer took a little over three minutes to pray, right? Is that a long prayer or a short prayer? Short prayer. Now, we should not be praying longer prayers than three minutes in church. In fact, Daniel's prayer is an awesome prayer. Some of our prayers need to be thought through a little bit. So it took about three minutes. Now, while Daniel was still praying, according to Daniel 9, the angel Gabriel showed up and informed him that the answer to his prayer came as soon as he started praying. God heard the prayer. God started answering the prayer. And God sent the mighty angel Gabriel to quickly give Daniel understanding and to let Daniel know that God forgives and God gives a future. So we have here an angel interacting with the prayer. In fact, in verse um, 21, the angel Gabriel, it says, came at the time of the evening sacrifice. And that time in Hebrew would have been, you know, as the day was coming to an end. But also, 
it, is, uh, it says in Hebrew, he came in great weariness. His feathers were falling off kind of idea. It uses the word for feather flight, kind of wearing out. And so the angel came into the room. Let me illustrate kind of what happens. Imagine God, the God of the universe, sitting on his throne with his big telescope eye looking down at Daniel's room. Can God see everywhere, everything? Based on scripture, he has seven eyes, which means complete eyesight. North, south, east, west, up, down, inside. So he's looking, and as he sees Daniel in the room, he takes his elbow. Now, I can't do this because I got bursitis, but he bumps Gabriel, you know, in his feathers. Wake up, Gabriel, sleep in the throne. Gabriel says, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, uh-huh. And he looks down there in the room. He says, look, take the monarch. Do you see Daniel? He's praying. Now, Daniel's a righteous man. He's a good man. I mean, he hasn't done most of the things he's praying about, but he's identifying with the sins of his people like Jesus, my son, will do in years to come. It's a wonderful prayer, Daniel. And he's, he's crying. He's upset that he's broken God's law. He feels broken. He says, Gabriel, look, I know you're the fastest angel in all my realm, but I'm going to give you a job to do today that I've never given you before. You've got to get down there before he finishes that prayer, and you've got to let him know he's forgiven. You've got to let him know there's love in my heart for him. You've got to go and give him the future prophecy of what's going to happen when forgiveness comes in human form. And so suddenly there's a lightning crack that's felt at the throne of God. The feathers begin to fly off of Gabriel's feathers, I'm speaking metaphorically, as he moves like a smart missile there in heaven across the river of life, and he moves so fast, the water flies up on the banks. He goes right by the tree of life, and the leaves get blown off. He hits the pearly gate on his way out, and the pearl rolls down Mount Zion as he starts moving through time and space at breakneck speed, quantum speed, whatever that is. And he comes into the... You know, a couple of those supernovas when he hit a star on his way through. It's coming into the atmosphere through heliosphere. It's red hot. He's hotter because he's moving like fire to find Daniel. Comes by all the great guest giants and he hits them and there's rings around them. Bounces off the moon on his way through the great crater of the moon and so on. And as he's coming into the atmosphere like a comet through the sky. Comes right through Daniel's window has his Nikes on, comes to a screeching halt. And as he comes to a screeching halt, he's huffing and puffing, according to verse 21, in great weariness. <gasps> You're forgiven. The God of heaven forgives you. That's what it means. Before you prayed the prayer, God answered your prayer. Have you ever wondered if God answers your prayers? God answers the kind of prayers that you need answers for immediately. He prays the prayer for forgiveness, reconciliation. The person who's broken will be healed. The answer comes immediately. Now look at Daniel 9.23. At the beginning of your supplication, Gabriel says, the command, literally in Hebrew, davar, the word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter, in Hebrew, the davar, the word, and understand the vision. The Hebrew text literally reads, understand with the word or in the word and understand with the vision or in the vision. If you want to understand God's forgiveness and God's truth in your heart, a philosopher can't give you the answers. You've got to understand with the word and with the vision to make sense of salvation and Christ. And so right here the angel saying, I may be an angel, but I want to direct you to the word of God for evidence. We aren't smart enough, friend, to find out God on our own unless God reveals himself to us. We cannot splice the evidence apart unless God shows us who he is.
That is why God sent Gabriel to tell Daniel that the Messiah matters, that God forgives, God saves. Supernatural, extraterrestrial, quantum-like beings move through time and space to help us, to encourage us, to work with God in visions and dreams to give us the evidence to believe. And I'd like to use the Revised Standard Version of Daniel 9.24. I'm putting it on the screen. Now, here's the prophecy. The foundation stone of the Christian religion. Seventy weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to do what? To finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, Nabi, Chadzon, Nabi, and to anoint the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies. Seventy weeks have been decreed. That's how it starts. In the Hebrew, week 70, cut off. The Aramaic Hebrew word translated decreed in my translation, most of ours, is the word katak, and it literally means to cut off. You can check it out in Morris Jastral's Hebrew Aramaic Dictionary on pages 512 and 513. Someone once said, that word never means that. So I just tell them to go to the Hebrew Aramaic Dictionary. That's the best Hebrew Aramaic Dictionary in the world until recent times. And look it up. It means cut off. Contextually, the 70 weeks are cut off of the first part of the longer vision of the 2300 days found in Daniel 14, the subject of last week's sermon. It starts in the autumn of 457 B.C. It brings us to the 19th century, the time of the end in Daniel 8. So this is not the full prophecy. It's the shorter part of the, of the fuller prophecy. It's the first part. So it means the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, 24, 27 is cut off as part of the long 2300-day evening morning prophecy of Daniel 8, 14. 70 weeks is the first part of the 2300-year-day prophecy. Now, in Daniel 8, 26, Daniel actually tells you that this vision of the man that he's now explaining here in Daniel 9 is part of the evenings and mornings. But that's not our subject today. Now, remember, the text in Daniel 9, 21 refers directly back to the vision Daniel saw in chapter 8. So the connection is made and validated by the angel. So that vision was 2,300 years long. That's the longest time prophecy in the Bible. In Daniel 8, it reaches to the time of the end. We're living in the time of the end. It reaches down to modern times, and it is our time. But this one's shorter. It doesn't reach down to modern times. Using the year-for-day principle, which the ancient Jewish people understood at the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, we have evidence of this. We have evidence in rabbinical understandings. But really don't need their understanding because you have hundreds of examples of it in the Bible that one day in prophecy equals one year. Seven, now get your calculators out. How many of you have calculators? How many of you have cell phones here? Got cell phones? Are there calculators on your cell phones? Get your cell phone. Have you ever heard a speaker say, get your cell phone out? Okay, get your cell phone out. All right, use the calculator. 70 weeks equals 70 times 7 days, right? How many days in a week? All right, 7. So 7 times 7 is how many? This is real hard math, you know. But the calculator, it's a home run hit. How many, how many days do we have then? 70 times 7 is 490 days. All right, using the year-for-day principle, 70 times 7 prophetic days equals 70 times 7, or 490 literal years. So this is a prophecy that goes almost half a millennium long. The 70 weeks of 490 years that reaches to the cross is the first part of the long 2300-day prophecy that reaches in Daniel 8 to the time of the end. It's cut off from it. 
The first part of the 23-year prophecy is 49 years long. We're looking at it. It points not to the time of the end. It points to the coming of Messiah in the first century so we can be ready for the time of the end. So the world will have a hope at the time of the end. So God will have a kingdom that's based on something in history, not at the end of history. Let's go back and read Daniel 9.24 again with this understanding in mind. Seventy weeks of years are decreed, cut off, katak, concerning your people, your holy city, it says to finish the transgression. Now the, tra- the word the transgression, hapasha, is referring directly to the rebellion of the Jewish people. That means 490 literal years were cut off for the Jewish nation to get their royal act together and to come back to God. Now, how many times does Jesus say in Matthew 18, we should forgive someone? Peter said, seven times? And Jesus said what? Seventy times seven. And he's going to verse 24 of Daniel 9 to get that. He's saying, look, the forgiveness in Daniel 9, 24 is my forgiveness. Seventy times seven. It represents perfect forgiveness. So it means that the first 490 years of the 2300-year prophecy is dedicated to the forgiveness the hope, the attempt to save the Jewish nation, to bring them back to God because of the rebellion, the apostasy. And the rest of the time period is allotted to the heavenly Jerusalem, the shift from the the, the sanctuary in Jerusalem that would be destroyed by the Romans, the shift into the heavens where Christ, as our great Melchizedek high priest, would open up the new and living way, the book of Hebrews says, so that we have an advocate before God Almighty at the throne of God throughout the entire Christian dispensation. So at the end of the 490 years, something happens of universal importance for Israel and the world that matters forever. The second half of verse 24 reads, now let's go slow here. Let's go slow here. Did I say that better? Let's go slow. I want us to focus. Well, look what it says. To put an end to sin. You got that? To atone for iniquity. Now, in the Hebrew, the definite article is not there because he's not talking about the Jewish nation's sin. He's not talking about the Jewish nation's iniquity alone. He's talking about all sin and iniquity. Universal sin, universal iniquity to deal with it, to put an end to literally to seal up sin, to atone for our own iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision, that's the 2300-year vision, chadzon, that's the word used in Daniel 8 for the 2300 days, and prophet, nabi. And that can mean Daniel, but the age of the prophets, and to anoint the Kodesh Kodeshim, a most holy place. Sir Isaac Newton brought out the point that the Hebrew can be read to anoint a most holy one. Both are true here. You don't have to pick which one is true. To anoint the heavenly sanctuary, not the earthly holy one, but the holy of holies, and to anoint a most holy one. The word anoint is the word Messiah, to create a Mashiach reality, a Messiah reality. So I ask the question, who made an end of sin? You can't just read those verses without asking the question, who did that? Who made an end of sin? Who atones for iniquity universally? Who brings in everlasting righteousness in this rotten world? Who does this? Friends, Jesus Christ is the obvious answer in the whole of Scripture, that question. The 490 years point to the first coming of Jesus Christ and the struggle for the earthly Jerusalem and how it relates to the Messiah. Verse 25, know therefore and understand. Now some people say, 
Now, you can never understand the book of Daniel. You can never understand the book of Revelation. You ever hear people say that? These are deep books. Now, they are. But what does the angel say in verse 25? Know, therefore, and understand. Which means we can. Know, therefore, and understand. Now, here it is. From the going forth of the commandment, that's the New King James Version, the Hebrew is the word. It means decree in the context. The word decree to restore and to build Jerusalem until, and I, the King James gets it right, the Messiah, the Prince. You see that? So we're talking about a time prophecy that tells us the Messiah Prince is coming and it's given us a chronology to expect him with. Unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, now that's seven times seven is 49, and three score and two weeks, that means 62. The street should be built again, the wall even in trouble's time. So seven times seven plus 62 times seven, Messiah shows up. That's what he's saying. That's clear language. He's telling us to expect the Messiah after the decree to restore Jerusalem, after 49 years, plus a few more, 62 times 7, and then you come up with the number just 7 shy of 490 years. After the 70-year captivity in Babylon, there were three, de three decrees issued by three Persian kings. They're recorded in the book of Ezra to restore the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So we don't have to go fishing about this. Now write this verse down in your notes. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Ezra 6.14. In Ezra 6.14, Ezra tells us that all three of these decrees, the decree of Cyrus the Great, Darius the Great, and Artaxerxes I of Persia, all three of these decrees, as far as the God of heaven is concerned, is one decree. It takes all three to equal God's decree. Okay? So decree number one, I'll put it on the screen. Recording Ezra 1, 1-7, was issued by Cyrus the Great in the year 536 B.C. to let them go back to Jerusalem, let the captives go at the end of the 70 years. Decree number two, recorded in Ezra 6, 1 to 12, was issued by Darius, the Persian, and the great in the year 518 B.C. Thereabouts, there's some argument over that year a little bit. But the next date is nailed by historical research. The chronology of Ezra 7 by Siegfried Horn and Kenneth Wood nails this date by the best evidences in the Bible and extra-biblical this is a date you can plant your hopes on. It's the autumn of 457 B.C. Decree number three, recorded Ezra 7, 12 to 26, was issued by Artaxerxes I of Persia in the autumn of 457 B.C. And so really, the three are one. It means the decree starts with the third one, which completes it as one, in the autumn of 457 B.C. Now we have something we can latch on to. The third decree put into effect the first two decrees. It's evident in the context of Ezra. Now, do the math with me again. Get your calculators out, your cell phones. If you get a call, just put them on hold, okay? <laughs> Would you? The 490 years starts ticking in the autumn of 457 B.C. That's the beginning date for the 2300-year prophecy and the 70-week prophecy because they're one. The 70 weeks is the first part of this longer prophecy. So we count seven weeks and 62 weeks until the Messiah. That's what the text says. So 7 plus 62 equals 69. Did I get that right? Come on, check my math. This is not calculus. It's not you know, differential equations. It's kind of, this is easy math, folks. So I should have quick answers. 7 plus 62 equals 69. 69 times 7, get your calculator out, equals how many days? Come on, I want to hear it. 483 days. So 483 prophetic days equals how many years? 
day for year, 483 prophetic years. Remembering there is no year zero, no year zero in the chronology that we have between B.C. and A.D. 483 years from 457 B.C. ends in the year A.D. 27. Did you hear me? A.D. 27. Both history and the Bible indicates that that year was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, Emperor of Rome. Christ will die in the 18th year of Tiberius Caesar, Emperor of Rome. Christ's ministry is during the time of Tiberius Caesar, Emperor of Rome. Christ will be baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar of Rome. He will die three and a half years later when his ministry comes to an end. Now turn to Luke 3, 1 to 3. Let's go to the New Testament. These documents are written hundreds of years after the book of Daniel. We have pieces of the book of Daniel that are 200 years before Christ. The book of Daniel was translated into the Greek 200 years before Christ. So don't say this was written after the fact. This was written before the fact. Luke 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eteria, and the region of Trachonitis, Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. That's a long date. This is the most descriptive date in the Bible, the New Testament, because it's the most important date. It is the 69th week of Daniel 9, and Luke knew it, and he wanted to make sure we knew it. He knew it. Now look at verse 2. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he went out into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now according to Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were wrong here. They were looking for two messiahs, not one. They were looking for a messiah from the tribe of Judah, and they were looking for a messiah from the tribe of Levi. Judah is the kingly messiah, and Levi would be the priestly messiah. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they got it right that when this prophecy is fulfilled, it would be a Melchizedek priesthood. It would be a king who is a priest, and it wouldn't matter where he came from as long as he was a king and a priest together. And that's what Jesus is, he is king and priest. When John was confronted, are you the Christ? He says, no. I may be from the tribe of Levi. There aren't two messiahs. There's only one coming, he says. Now, the Baptists showed up in the very year Daniel predicted the Messiah would appear. Go down to verse 15, Luke 3, same chapter. Now, as the people were in expectation, the Revised Standard was a eager expectation. Why? Because they were expecting something that year. While as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ, now the word Christ in Greek is the Greek word for Messiah. Whether he was the Messiah or not, John answered saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The answer is no, I'm not the Messiah, but he is coming. This is the year of expectation. In the same year, Jesus was anointed. In fact, in the same chapter, go down to verse 21, when all the people were baptized. John was baptizing people so they could get over their sins and start over with God. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended bodily form on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you, I'm well pleased. Now, what's going on here? Where have we seen the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters? That's Genesis 1 at the creation of the world. That's Moses. 
Where have we seen God the Father speak? That's Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light. And where have we heard God say that something's good? It says the light was good in Genesis 1. This is creation imagery at Jesus' baptism. It's the God of the Trinity that was there at the dawn of time showing up to corroborate the ministry of Jesus at the end of the 69th week of Daniel's prophecy to introduce Messiah Prince. God the Father speaks. The Holy Spirit hovers over the Jordan like he did at the dawn of time over the waters of the deep. God speaks, and he doesn't say, let there be light. He says, this is my son, who is the light of the world. Jesus claims that in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And he says, he is good. The light was good at the dawn of time. Makes sense, shares up my spine. When I think about a new creation is operative in Jesus. The Hebrew word Messiah in Daniel 9, 26 is Mashiach. It literally reads the anointed one. Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit in the year 27, perfectly fulfilling the time prophecy. Go back to Daniel 9.26. Take your Bibles. Go back. The Bible says after the 62 weeks, that would mean after AD 27, Messiah shall be cut off. So does Messiah die in the middle of the 69th week or after it? What does the text say? After. So we should expect the death of the Messiah following that time period. Now that went out in AD 27. So after AD 27, the death of the Messiah, he'll be cut off. But look what it says next. Not for himself. See, he's dying for others, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, now theologians have debated about that. There are three possibilities could be the Messiah prince, the Jewish people here. It could be the prince, which is the Roman Titus, who brought his armies to destroy Jerusalem. It could be the prince of this world. When Jesus said, the prince of this world is coming, he's quoting this verse. And he has no power over me. The fact is, all three are true. The Romans, the Jewish people, and Satan corroborated to destroy the Messiah. And the people of the prince who is the common shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood. Now, the Hebrew can be a little differently. In fact, it literally says, his end shall be with the flood. The flood destroyed the world. The flood of evil destroys the Messiah. It also destroys the city of Jerusalem. Until the end, the war, desolations are determined. In verse 26, Messiah matters. Why? Because the Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. Friends, Jesus didn't die for his sins. Jesus never sinned. He asked them, do you see any sin in me? And they couldn't point any out. Jesus died for you and me and for our sins. He died for the awful sins of Israel in that long prayer Daniel was praying. He died for the awful sins of the whole world also. He died for the little children. He died for the unborn children. He died for those who have the roughest road in life. He died for the world so they can live. The Hebrew text reads in verse 26 that his end is with the flood. That's literally the Hebrew. He would find himself in the flood of human ill and woe. Everything we've ever done wrong flooded into Jesus' heart and mind. When Jesus began to pray for the whole world in the Garden of Gethsemane, the evidence of Scripture would indicate that was the very place where the Garden of Eden had been located. He had come back to the place of the beginning, where the sanctuary, where the new Eden will be is the Mount of Olives, the scripture indicates in Zechariah and Revelation, evidentially. 
And he was there praying where the conflict had begun, praying for the sins of the whole world as it all came down on him. He was the collective consciousness of humanity from Adam to the end, embracing all our ugly stuff as if he owned it himself. And Jesus carried all our guilt and evil to the cross where God could put it to death so we could live forever. So we would never have to carry it in our lives. He carried it in himself as he carried the cross on his back. And he carried it into the grave to leave it there so he could come out on Sunday morning justified by God Almighty so we could be saved. The Bible says he died for our sins of first importance. Romans 4.25, he was raised for our acceptance, justification of second importance. Jesus died for our sins. He, not for himself, Daniel says, for us. And that is the most important truth. Daniel 9.27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now Jesus, when he had the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the, the blood, this is the bread of the covenant, which is broken for the, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. He, he affirmed the covenant just before he died. And notice the language. Then he shall confirm, the Hebrew is he will mighty man a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, now here it is, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's do the math again. For the last week of the 70 weeks, because the Messiah dies after the 69th week, not before. One week equals seven days. Is that right? One times seven is what? Help me. Seven days. So seven days, using the year-for-day principles, how many years? Seven years. The last week begins in the year A.D. 27, which we've already established, and it ends in the year A.D. 34. This is Jesus' time. Christ is here. This is the time of Christ's ministry and what follows Christ's ministry, historically speaking. The middle of the week is the year A.D. 31, and that's the point that we're looking at where the sacrificial system ends, where the Messiah is cut off in the midst of the week after A.D. 27. Daniel wrote, now Jesus had a three and a half year ministry, which matches the chronology of Daniel 9 perfectly. Daniel wrote clearly that the Messiah's death would cause the sacrifice to come to an end. That means the earthly sanctuary system would end, and the heavenly new covenant priesthood of Jesus Christ, the new Melchizedek, would begin in the year A.D. 31. The book of Hebrews says that when Christ was resurrected in that year, on Sunday morning, God Almighty declared him to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he had given him the power of an indestructible life that could never be taken away. Friend, when Jesus died on the cross on the summit of the Mount of Olives, that's where he died. All the people and all the Roman centurion, the, the Roman armies, the centurion, they saw the veil of the temple from that eastern slope because the wall line was low enough. They saw it, and they saw it torn from top to bottom, and it's recorded in the New Testament documents. But they also, as they saw it tore from top to bottom, they heard Jesus cry out, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then they saw that great stone lintel that held the, the single veil of the temple crack. And it was torn from top to bottom as it fell the earth. Now how do I know that? Because the ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells us, right in sync with the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, that many years before, the great stone lintel that held the veil of the temple was cracked by an earthquake, and it tore it, and it fell, and it would have torn it from top to bottom. 
So the rock was split and the veil was torn. In the year 8031, their earthly system of sacrifices had come to their antitypical end. The book of Hebrews says Jesus is the veil. His flesh, his humanity, his incarnation is the veil. He is the transition from the holy city, the old past, from the earthly Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem. That he opened a new and living way through his flesh in the resurrection as he took us in his heart to the throne of God as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Matthew 25, 27, 50. Look at it in your Bibles. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then the behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earthquake, and the rocks were split. And one of those rocks was thousands of pounds. It held the veil of the temple. It cracked and tore it from top to bottom. Did the New Testament apostles understand this prophecy? Is it something I'm talking about and they weren't talking about? No, they understood it. Actually, the answer is yes, they understood it. Turn to Mark 1, 14 and 15. Here's Jesus as he starts his ministry. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What time is fulfilled? It's Daniel 9, 24, 27. The very year is fulfilled when he began to preach and teach the gospel, AD 27. Now, the best reference to the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 in the New Testament, and there are many references, is 1 Peter chapter 1. Take your Bibles, turn with me to verse 10. Peter is writing, just before he would die, he will be crucified upside down because he has no doubt Jesus can resurrect him too. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what? Now, that's what the King James says, the Greek is a relative pronoun with personal force. Many translations will say searching what person or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now look at verse 12. To them it was revealed that they were not serving themselves but to us, as they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the good news of the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Peter said the prophets who prophesied searched for answers about the coming salvation of Jesus Christ. He says they searched for the time of the Messiah's coming with angels helping them out. And he says it was in fact revealed to them. That's Daniel 9, 24 to 27 stuff. Angels interacting about time and the Messiah's coming. 1 Peter 1.17, Peter taught the people of his day that the Messiah matters in every day. Because he came, because he came on time, our lives can never be the same. They are transformed by the good news of Christ's coming. He taught them Jesus' coming has changed the world. Look at verse 17, 1 Peter 1. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. That means respect knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. He says, forget Jewish tradition. We got the scriptures and we got truth and we have revelation here. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now verse 20 is the key verse. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world. That means before all time there was no plan B. He's the only plan to save the world. 
He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. Now, the Greek is a little bit more focused here. The word last times is literally eschaton ton chronon. You can hear it there. Chronon, like a chronology watch. It literally means the end of the time chronologies. He was revealed at the end of the time chronologies for you. Remember, Messiah didn't die for himself. He died for you. Peter is capturing the language of Daniel 9. He's saying he showed up on time at the end of the time chronologies for you, just like Daniel 9 said. The Greek reads that way. Peter is referring to the 70 weeks. Sir Isaac Newton got it right with Peter. Sir Isaac Newton was no one's fool. He studied the Bible every bit as intensely as he studied physics. And the great discoveries of Bible prophecy, even though he was ahead of his time, he didn't have all the answers. He had a lot of them. He got this one right. This time prophecy is the foundation stone of the Christian religion because the Messiah matters to all of us. Friend, Jesus is the Messiah. Islam can't give you a Messiah. Can't. Hinduism doesn't give you the Messiah to take away your sins. No world religion gives you what God gives you in Jesus. The Messiah matters. Jesus shed his blood for you and me so we can be forgiven for all eternity, so we can face the judgment bar of God with no fear if we are in Jesus. Peter says, come to him, that living stone in the context, built and be a spiritual house built up into the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. The Messiah matters. God in Christ has forgiven us by simple faith, we lay hold of a salvation that is a finished work in Jesus. And we can come into the presence of God accepted today because of Jesus. I'm grateful for Jesus. Anybody here grateful for Jesus? I'm grateful for the evidence that we have. That the greatest scientific mind, perhaps of all time, to the time, to interact with the same prophecy that I am preaching to you, but not as good as he could share it. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's good news. We have two slides to end up with. To pull it together. Daniel 8.14. Remember this 70-week prophecy of 490 years that brings us to the coming of Christ? It's cut off of the longer time prophecy of the 2300 days. And, and, and it starts with the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. The 70 weeks doesn't bring you the restoration of Jerusalem. It brings you the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents God's kingdom. The restoration of Jerusalem. In the Middle Ages, little horn power was destroying and stomping on the heavenly Jerusalem because Christ was a high priest in heaven. The church was connected as citizens of that heavenly reality. And so the Bible, this is the longest time prophecy in the Bible. Go back. The 2300 years brings us to this. Go back to the verse. I'm going to read it here. here. I'll quote it. If, yeah, it is. Thank you, Bob. And he said unto him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, that means days, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. God's kingdom comes. The fifth kingdom, the Torah kingdom of Daniel, comes at the time of the end. Now, Luke 19, 11, 12, the disciples asked Jesus when he would set up his kingdom. He says, a nobleman went into a far-off country, received his kingdom, and then returned. Daniel 7, just before the end of the world, Christ comes before the ancient days as the Son of Man. He's presented for God Almighty inside the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And the Bible says, unto him is given a kingdom, dominion, and glory. 
That time prophecy runs out in the middle of the 19th century. Move to the next slide. Here it is. Autumn of 457 B.C., the 70 weeks runs out. We've seen Jesus comes. A.D. 27 to 34, he dies A.D. 31. That was cut off of the longer time prophecy of the 23 years. With no year zero, that reaches to the year 1844. And I can't see it on my slide there. You can't either. I should have it in white, not, not red. But it reaches to the year 1844. According to the Bible, we are living in the time of the end. That is the transition from the old medieval order to the modern era of nationalism, the fear and distress of nations that Jesus predicted that would precede the coming of Christ. We are living in the time of the end. It's also the time of great opportunity when the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14. And then he says in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Stay in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Jesus commended the book of Daniel to us at the time of the end as evidence of the gospel. And we should read it and study it and share it with our friends and neighbors. How many of you want to give some Bible studies this coming year, Reaching Hearts? we got to have a Bible study culture going on here. Mr. Kiondo, working with the, the personal ministries group here and others, myself, we must all be learning how to share the Word of God in some capacity with our friends and neighbors to bring them to church where we can help them be saved in God's kingdom. God bless you. We'll have our closing song now. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.